Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, heavy emphasis on agitator, friend and Yoda, most having to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello there. Okay, so we're interviewing someone today who's interesting. He's got my life. I want He's retired. <laughs> so I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the challenge with writing an intro for today's guest is after decades of work, he's retired but not after influence in the world of architecture and its indoor environment, specifically moisture, control, humidity, energy, and indoor air quality in buildings. And his legacy includes service as an Air Force officer in the engineering and service divisions of the Strategic Air Command, marketing and application engineering for Muntis Corporation, another one of those small little, you know, grassroots companies, and uh, director of research and consulting at Mason Grant, which is his swan song. Welcome to the show, Lou Harriman. <laughs> Thanks very much, guys. It's uh, pleasant to be here. (laughs) Lou, you've taken your brain to many places around the world, helping building owners solve their IAK problems, problems, and you've left a good chunk of what you've learned in publications for many associations and institutes. You certainly helped me in my own design practice and ability to communicate to others on indoor air quality issues. In all those years, it remains unknown if you've actually pissed anybody off. You, <laughs> if there was ever a, a gentleman, gentleman, or the prince of a fellow, you'd be him. What told you to become one of the world's nicest experts on moisture in buildings? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I think probably where it got started is back in Buffalo, New York, where I grew up and happened to go to a very odd school run by a group of uh, refugee Hungarian priests from the failed revolution of 1956. And they had a view of uh, education that was twofold. One is you're going to learn a lot about a lot of things, and therefore you need be fearless about learning anything, number one. And then the other infection that happened is with my uh, mom and dad, who were, who were dedicated to making stuff better no matter what. And their thought was, if you don't do it, no one else is going to. So, so those two things... You know, a a, a European-centered, broad education, liberal education, and a sense of responsibility to do something productive for the rest of the world. That's how I got to be where I am today. (laughs) Actually, that's a a really interesting take. I haven't thought about that for a long time. The whole, like, add something, do something, be value-add, right? Mm -hmm. Having that inculcated into you by your parents is quite valuable, actually, to set you up for a good career. That's it. That's it. Yeah. That's that's why. And I love this this the fearless fearless about learning. Yeah, that's a pretty powerful statement. That'll go in the show notes. Expand <laughs> upon that, Lou. Tell us about this fearless about learning because you have take like I said, you're taking your brain around the world and and obviously exposed it to a whole bunch of things and you've shared it. So tell us about that whole learning experience that you've had. It's a long story, but I'll try and you know make it make it brief. The really, it it was a question of having learned a, a little bit about a lot of subjects at an early age, and therefore saying, "Well, okay, chemistry. I don't understand this, but I understand some of the basics about chemistry. Maybe I can figure it out." And really, what made it all possible wasn't just that initial attitude; it was the incredible luck in life of 
having been able to work with people and for people that were really smart in so many different areas and could educate me really quickly. So I just happened to work for a bunch of really great teachers, and they were very tolerant of my continuous questions. And I keep asking questions all the time. In fact, I have an award. The the asker of the most questions at the the 2005 uh, Mold Conference in, in Florida, I have that. On my wall downstairs, <laughs> it was a little sketch on a little piece of Hilton Hotel stationery because I'd asked gosh darn many questions. They all got so sick of it. They said, okay, here, here here's your award. Now shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you know that kid, why? 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 <laughs> How does that work? Wait, let me understand this. <laughs> I thought we said. <laughs> it's funny how in the pursuit of knowledge, it actually, in a way, creates the roadmap, doesn't it? I mean, you find yourself on a road seeking the knowledge and that takes you to authors, presenters, seminars, (laughs) courses. And through that, you get exposed to these smart people that you get to ask questions to. It's much like Adam and I do in this podcast. The reason why we do it is, is, A, for students that are in school, not quite sure what they're going to do with their careers. And to let those students know that being frustrated and confused and not maybe actually knowing what you're doing is actually a good place to be <laughs> if, it keeps, if it leads to questions you know like well and and if and if it keeps you humble too so so that yes. your mind remains open yes <laughs> yeah and i when i think adam like i mean the, all the guests that we've had on i mean it's incredibly amount of high achievers who some of them didn't have a clue what they were going to do you know but they just they they had that journey that you talked about you know that fearless about learning, and that took them on their journey. It was their roadmap, ultimately. I think another thing that that you mentioned there, which really resonates with me, is one thing leads to another, for sure. So in my particular case, to illustrate that, it was architecture, which didn't work out. I wasn't going to be an architect, thank goodness for the profession of architecture. And then the Air Force, which was an odd thing of running hotels. And then I just wanted to make stuff. And then you're you're working for a manufacturer. You understand what the heck they make or how it's made. You just like making stuff. And then you kind of want to know what it does and why. And then all of a sudden you're figuring out, you know, mechanical engineering, which wasn't part of my university training. <laughs> and then mechanical engineering leads to surface chemistry in the case of desk and dehumidifiers. And then dry air leads to the problem of mold and moisture and nasty problems in buildings and that leads to the fact that it has less to do with dry air, more to do with architecture back again and rain. <laughs> and then indoor air quality is a function of all those things. And then indoor air quality turns out to be really important, more important than we understood. And PM 2.5 particulate matter turns out to be far more important than humidity. And one thing leads to another. And, and then you just track through those things. Uh, it, your interest drags you kicking and screaming into a totally new area, making you very uncomfortable for a while until you figure it out. <laughs> Absolutely. And that, when I was teaching, we would explain like the four stages of learning, right? Unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious <laughs> competence, and then unconscious competence, right? So you don't know what you don't know. And then quickly figure out what you don't know. And then you figure out, okay, well, I kind of know what I'm doing. And then eventually you just do it without thinking about it. Yeah. yeah, We would teach them that the best place to be is to be aware of what you don't know. 
and be aware of what you know and understand that's not enough. And you never want to find yourself on the fourth stage, which is arrogance, where you think you absolutely know every freaking thing. Yeah. And we've seen that over and over again in all areas of, of industry where people think that they know it and the reality is they haven't got a clue. <laughs> they're, like, they're like everybody else. <laughs> and they're dangerous, but they won't admit it. Well, that's the other problem is negative knowledge, where you know less than zero because you know that you know something that isn't correct, and you know that to be true, but you're oh, wrong. I love that. So, negative so, knowledge. so negative knowledge. Your your knowledge quotient in that area drops below zero because you're wrong. <laughs> Dangerous, <laughs> but you know it. <laughs> a lot of that around. So, actually, interesting. One of the things that seems to come up a lot more now in the last year for me is I discussions around IEQ, IAQ, right? It's interesting to hear you acknowledge how important they are. So when you look back over the arc of your career, you know, you're a specialist in a specialism, right? Which is you're about moisture and buildings, right? It doesn't yes. get more niche than that. No, it's pretty so, Yeah, it's a niche of a niche. It's like the cherry on the cherry with the cherry on top. But how, when you look back over the arc of your career, you know, where do you think, do you think things are better now? I mean, sometimes I look back and I despair a little bit because I see the same problems today that I saw 40 years ago. And it sort of depresses me a little bit. I, there's a lot more shiny things, a lot more computery things. But in general, I don't see a massive leap forward in the built environment, do you? Well, a lot of thoughts on that. I'll try and abbreviate them. But yeah. I think in general, when, when we're talking about, okay, you know, since 1949, since, since I was born, I think that the world has made enormous enormous progress in, in what is effectively a very short amount of time in so many ways. Looking at the global situation, it's so much better than, than it was 75, 50, even, even 40 years ago yeah. in terms of understanding of, of human requirements. Now, regarding buildings and practice of architecture and engineering, yeah, similarly, we have a much better ability to understand what's going to make a, a really good building and what's not, you know, and I attribute this, you know, Robert, a lot of this is your fault pointing out to the importance of radiant, <laughs> radiant temperature <laughs> and thermal comfort. <laughs> no, it, it, that's yeah, not something. new Roman not, technology. Right? <laughs> it's, it's not something that, that people really thought about at all in an organized way. Of course, it's been part of architectural engineering since there were people in buildings, but it wasn't acknowledged to and understood to be that. So, yes, I, I think there are tremendous improvements. It's difficult to avoid thinking about all of the shortcomings, of which there are many. And the chief among them, I would say, is siloization. You just have all of these specialists, like a guy who knows a lot about humidity and moisture in buildings and nothing about how to size a chiller, <laughs> for example. Actually, I know a little bit about how to size a chiller, but, but the point is that there are all these little divisions and trying to retain a sense of the totality of the, of the job at hand is difficult. And it's especially difficult because we like being experts in a particular area and we're a little bit concerned about moving out of that area because we know that we're ignorant there. So we don't want to talk about that. We're going to stay here and pound away at the importance of this compared to the relative unimportance of everything else. <laughs> so the sense of the whole is very difficult to maintain, maybe more difficult now than, than, than it was 50 years ago. There's my thought. Do you think we deal with moisture, let's call it moisture management in buildings better now? 
Do you think the technologies are there and the... Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a change in the last 30 years, really, because of the consciousness of the importance of, of avoiding microbial growth in buildings. Yeah. I won't say just mold because we now know it's, it's bacteria is probably equally or far more important. So, yeah. you know, it, yeah, it, it, there's no question that, that we have better understanding, a better uh, set of tools to use, better set of guidelines to use. That's a huge, huge improvement. Not that everybody does that. But we've learned there's parallel continuums going on here, right? There's this evolution yeah. of knowledge and it rides along the building property development industry. Some of it drops mm-hmm. down because <laughs> there are some people that they're grabbing that knowledge and say, oh, we're yeah. going to apply it to our building today. Yeah. But there's a lot of buildings that were built during that development of knowledge that never applied what we know. And it's those buildings today that, you know, like I'm in a, I'm down here in the South and we're in a relatively new condominium project. No exhaust fans. It's hot and humid in here, right? You know, so, the yeah, only, so they ventilate with the outdoors, but when the outdoors is at 80%, you know, it's, what are you doing? You're just, you're moving air through, but you're not taking care of the yeah. moisture. No. Yeah. Yeah. That's always been a, a problem. And, um, yeah, and it's no less of a problem now. It's just that the tools are available. The education is is available. And it really wasn't before because it was just sort of in a murky state. Moisture's bad. Well, moisture isn't bad, you know. Moisture materials, that's bad. How bad? Well, now we have a better sense of what that is. So things have become more usefully quantitative. Guidelines have become more usefully quantitative. And no, definitely improved. But that doesn't mean that that the world has implemented all of what we know. No, <laughs> of course, no. I made a very nice living, uh, you know, dealing with the consequences of people's ignorance or willful or generally not willful, generally unconscious ignorance of what, what the important factors are, which is simple, by the way, for our listeners. <laughs> if you want to control <laughs> humidity in a building, make sure the outdoor air is dry all the time before it gets into the building. Do that. No problem. Don't do that. Maybe a big problem, maybe a small problem. Pressurization, right? So that too. Push in the outside air and pressurize the building. Mm, yeah, so and many really. Times re- you go somewhere and the building's not pressurized. It's not hard to work out when it's not, right? You can tell by the door, right? Yeah, you yeah. get sweating, uh, sweating grill, you know, supply diffusers. Yeah. And really, the you know, from an engineering perspective, to me, the the thing to focus on is the exhaust air. People talk about the pressurization. I'm frequently asked about, well, how much air does it take to pressurize a building? And I said, well, not much. What do you got for exhaust? Well, yeah. I don't know what I got for exhaust. That's a different, I don't know, the kitchen people know about that. Well, you need to know about that and you need to control it and you need to measure it and you need to make sure it isn't too much or too little. Well, yeah, but the toilet exhaust, they go all the time. Well, do something about that. <laughs> Measure it. <laughs> Don't try and keep pumping air and to pressurize a building. That's a big waste of energy. <laughs> it Listen, all you value all. engineers out there, I've lost count of times I've seen the VFDs value engineered out. So even oh. on handover, the building with clean filters is pressurized. Then the VFDs have been taken out of the building. I'm talking about commercial space here mostly, right, and, and hotels. And then as the filters block up, the building slowly goes negative, right? Yeah. Yeah, filters. Yeah, filters. For the sake of a five hundred dollar in VFD, Joe. You know I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. The amount of damage that does. Or a thirty dollar change of filters. 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's freaking crazy. This is what drives me nuts. You're right. There's a lot more awareness and there's a lot more guides and standards, but there's no real compulsion or willpower to deal with it still. I'm a little bit more optimistic about that now than I was, let's say, three years ago. And the reason is because of COVID-19. Yes. You know, that, that's put a, a focus on ventilation and filtration that has never, ever been there, in, certainly in my, in my living memory. Never been anything like as important yeah. in the public consciousness as it is now. And I think that has a lot to do with portable CO2 monitoring, man. It's like, that's a good thing to have. The public has little gadgets, you know, that are effective. You know? I have exactly and, uh, the same one on my desk across the room here. It works because you say, I don't want my kids to be in this school. It's uh, 2,500 parts per million or 4,600 parts per million. I don't want that for my kids. Good. Okay. We go to the administrator. The administrator says, well, we've got a ventilation system. And then the question is, is it turned on? <laughs> Actually, it would be cool if you sent your kid to school with one of them. Um, kudos on the 590 CO2 level there. <laughs> Very healthy. Okay. I... I'm going to be right back because now that Lou showed his, I got to show mine. <laughs> I'm me. Okay. All right. Great. Yeah. So, my one says, let's have a look, 11.50. So I've been locked yeah. in my back cave. So I'm at 10.51 ppm, which is not horrible, but it's not great, right? Yeah. Oh, it, it's fine. It's, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's fine. I mean, really... That's the thing is, there you go. Yep. It, I wait. It's the same thing, right? I've been, we're, yeah. there's no ventilation in this space. Right. And so I've closed the windows and the patio door to keep the noise out, right? Which is right. what right. people do. Right. And right. we're starting to see an increase. And I know like about half an hour ago, you know, this was up around 2,200. Yeah. We weren't even aware of it. And we would not normally be aware of it until you train yourself to look at it and go, what the hell's going on? Right. And so, and it doesn't take that long to get the numbers down. Well, it depends. Yeah. We've been using it. When I say we, I mean, my wife and I have been using it to, uh, to keep track of things because as we slowly begin to rejoin the rest of the population outdoors, we're wearing masks all the time and in, when we're indoors in any kind of gathering. But we do use this Aeronet 4 as a warning device and take yeah. action accordingly. I'll just give you an extreme example. This was from about five months ago. We went to a, a folk music concert in our local area. And after the second song, this, Holy this shit. is what the... 42.92. Uh, wow. That's not good. And uh, and so you see that kind of rise and you and you get out of Dodge, you know? Yeah, you just that's, that's... leave. You, know? you just leave right away. The other thing is, it's a great educational tool for uh, for others. We we went to a, another venue. The ventilation was absolutely terrific, and I complimented the owner manager of the performance venue. I said, "This is great." You know, the carbon dioxide never got above nine hundred parts per million, and you had yeah. fifty people in here. And she said, "Well, what does that mean?" I said, "It means you got good ventilation." Oh, okay. Well, we did put in a ventilation system, and then the following. Three weeks later, we went to the same place, and it was just equally great, even with more people. And then at 9 o'clock, it started to rise sharply. So, so, schedule. so I took that over. I said, something happened at 9 o'clock. Did, did you turn the ventilation system off? And it says, no, 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 no. It, it goes until 10 o'clock. Uh, I said, does it really? Does it? And my wife, who is far smarter than I, said, did you guys change it for the for the time change 
<laughs> and said, oh, no, we didn't. Okay. But it was beautiful because it, it showed that very clearly. Yeah. It was great ventilation until the ventilation system went off, proving, again, what a, what a terrifically effective technique it is to monitor the CO2 over time. <laughs> what would happen if every classroom had a monitor and when that thing hit, I don't know, 1,200, everyone went, see ya, goodbye. Uh, or the teacher or, or the teacher yeah. said fine i'm out of here good yeah. luck kids i'm yeah. gone yeah that level of disobedience is what you need to get mass change right <laughs> well i think parents complaining to you yeah yeah because of uh, there was a post this morning on linkedin about that a guy who who had a, a co2 monitor presumably this one actually by the graphic that was in his uh, daughter's backpack <laughs> I've just shown you go to class, it goes way up. You know, talking about then, David's post? I've forgotten who it was. David, David I guess it was. That, that's it was who David it was. Elster. Yeah, they're really, it's a really good post because it showed, you know, at home, it's pretty good. And, and you'd go into a classroom, not very good. And then when you're in the, the bus on the way to and from school, it's very, very bad. <laughs> yeah, we had David on uh, one of our other episodes. We were talking about COVID and. Uh, yeah. Aside from he's a great guy and a good engineer, you know, they've worked with the Ontario Association of Professional yeah. Engineers to develop a set of guidelines. It's four documents at all. And they've done a fantastic uh-huh. job uh-huh. of communicating in layman's, layperson's language, mm. you know, the mitigation measures and why you need to pay attention to this stuff. So just a mm. shout out to those uh, to those people. Lou, on terms, you know, it's funny because, you know, Bill, Bill quite well, a good friend of yours and ours. and he has made some, like, I respect his position on using CO2 monitors in spaces. It's certainly not without opposition, right? I mean, yeah. when you look at the values that are in the guidelines and the statements that are made in the CO2 guidelines, they've come come up with opposition. But as an indicator, you know, here's the, here are our three nerds here going off our, our meters. But we understand that these are not air quality instruments in the sense of what we would traditionally like we're not measuring particles here we're not measuring Uh, formaldehyde you know we're measuring indications of the rebreathe rate and we're and they also have humidity and temperature on it as well so i think it's important that people understand that these are a great tool to be to bring awareness to what's happening within your space and that there's a need to you know to bring in outdoor air presumably that the outdoor air is good but if the outdoor air is worse well then what do you do right yeah, the, the number of times where the outdoor air is worse, you know, in, in any important uh, respect is, uh, is relatively small. We think about it a lot. You know, uh, wildfires, we think about New Delhi, we think about this morning Lahore turns out to be the worst on the planet in terms of outdoor air quality. And all these things are true. But uh, certainly when we're thinking about North America, yeah, it's really pretty good most of the time, most places. So personally, I, I don't want to discourage people from from using ventilation or because of the possibilities that there might be some circumstances under which it's not good. And by the way, it's not good. And we're also not going to filter it when it comes in. And it's mostly mostly pretty good. <laughs> you know, yeah. 95, 99% of the time, it's a good idea to, to ventilate with outdoor air as long as you are, you know, yeah. controlling the humidity. <laughs> These things are a proxy for effective ventilation, right? But What's good about them is they're making people aware of it, right? So in yes. the past, most yes. people thought about temperature, maybe humidity. But really, you've got to be talking about temperature, humidity, total VOCs, and CO2. That is a whole 
smorgasbord of stuff that could be used and maybe should be used to control ventilation systems, right? As well, a hierarchy. I, I make a distinction between, oh. it, personally, I, I make a distinction between what's useful for the public to think about and what's useful for us geeks to think yeah. about. Because I think that public has a limited attention span for geekery. And if you can give the public one or two things to think about as important that are demonstrably directly, you know, relevant, you know, to human health, then that that's better yeah. because then you can perceive that there's a reduction in risk. And so those are two, you know, is ventilation and, and PM 2.5. And so PM 2.5 is problematic right now. Particle count, small. Yeah. You know, that's directly tied to health. Carbon dioxide is only a proxy. But both of those are risk indicators for airborne infection. And arguably, airborne infection is a much more important problem than exposure to low levels of total volatile organics over time. You know, yeah. So I, I think that it would be a mistake to, for the industry and, and for us in general to, to promote, which is what we've been doing for years. Everything's important. You got to think about everything. <laughs> and by the way, we don't know what the levels are that are important, but they're all important somehow. So, so if I joke you yeah. public, I'm saying, look, just tell me what's healthy and then build it and give it to me, right? That's yeah, what I want. Right. I don't want to have to one worry our, about it. One of our <laughs> listeners is Amanda Hughes. Shout out to Amanda. And we know with her, and she's from Alberta. And in Alberta, we have a division between the Edmonton and Calgary. Edmonton School Board funded. The installation of HEPA filters in all the classrooms mm-hmm. and the Calgary school board, including the Calgary Catholic school board are fighting it. And Amanda and her team from Alberta have been pointing out with the use of these monitors, what's actually going on in the schools in Calgary as they did out in New Brunswick. And the ones that happened in New Brunswick, they actually had to take action to it because as soon as it hit the press that, and you know, they have, I don't know how many schools that they have there, but the press was saying, well, what the hell is going on? You know, and that has been one of the biggest things. I remember like we had Bill Bothell on twice to help our school divisions in British Columbia and Alberta. He came on and, and did two lectures. And the denial by administrators or the refusal by administrators to even pay attention. And it got to the point where they would be saying things like, yeah, but the building's designed to ASHRAE 62.1, so we're okay. We're okay. Well, they we're not okay because what year was it? building built because the standards have changed over the decades. And by the way, the standard was never written for airborne pathogens. So that's <laughs> yes. t- it's time to have a heart to heart discussion with administrators who really, you know, are talk have been talking out of, out of queue and they shouldn't be. I completely agree. And I, I think that's one of the, to me again, just to cycle back to the, uh, one of the earlier points is that's one of the biggest reasons to, to monitor for, We'll call it civilian monitoring of CO2 because, you know, when, when administrators are confronted with numbers like that on a regular basis, they realize, oh, well, we have a ventilation system, but doesn't actually work. You know, and it hasn't in years because we were trying to save energy about six years ago. We slammed those dampers shut and now we're screws in the dampers so you don't have any outdoor <laughs> air. You know, and that, that happens. It happens a yeah. lot. It was designed for 62.1 at an earlier age and does it work well? Of course it works. I can hear it, you know. The school board are pushing back based on cost, I presume, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, they're not saying screw them kids. They're saying we can't yeah. afford it. Is that exactly right? In Calgary? The reason why I'm hesitating is because I've been privy to some emails. Oh, yeah, don't uh, that have uh, on. Yeah, don't and I want to be okay. careful with my words here. <laughs> okay. 
So some of the dialogue that's gone on between administrators and I'll just say their technical resources, and we'll leave it at that, (laughs) are approaching ethical breakdown of ethical obligations to to the community, teachers and students. There have been plenty of those, um, you know, certainly on the marketing side, you know, Uh, COVID-19, a breach of uh, professional ethics, magical magical solutions that, uh, you know, don't cost very much and can be easily installed and don't, in fact, do anything. So, yeah. But again, I think the bigger story is the number of places where it's really gone very well and, and when where it's become yeah. more of an integral part of the thinking. You know, Boston schools here, you know, in, in my local area, you know, pretty quickly they had a website including CO2 monitoring in every classroom in the Boston public school. And, you know, you could go and see what it, what it was. It wasn't at a time when the kids were there because the kids, schools were closed. But then as it picked up, it was quite impressive. Same thing with schools in Northern Virginia uh, around Washington, D.C. They did a magnificent job. SETI Engineering did a superb job of, uh, of really thoughtful mitigation in, on both filtration and, and also ventilation that would not have happened without that money. But I think to your point, though, <laughs> Adam, I think you're right, is that so much of the pushback is just like, we can't do anything anyway. Why are you beating up on us? You know, we, we'd love to improve things for the kids, but we can't, you know, or we don't know what to do. Or we go to people and we get six different opinions from five different experts, you know. It's not easy for them. Yeah, I mean, to straw man it, you could say, what do you want me to do, buy books or bloody, you know, in filters or something, right? I had that question asked to me when I back in the 90s when I was doing lectures in the South about the importance of ventilation in schools and therefore the importance of drying it out, you know, making sure you don't create, you know, mold and bacterial growth in, in schools. And, you know, very fine consulting engineer from Atlanta said, look, he said, last week, they fine. You know, I showed them the ASHRAE standard, which at that time had just tripled the required ventilation error for schools. And they say, well, ASHRAE, what's ASHRAE? I explain and they say, well, okay, they say, are the kids going to die if we don't do that? Well, no, in the 90s, they're not going to die. I mean, it's just really important to have good indoor air quality. And they said, well, look, you know, we get it, but we've got a choice. You know, we either put in the system that you want us to put in, or we don't buy books for the next three years. You know, it's that simple in a rural district. So it's legitimate. You know, it's going to come down to, there's going to, and it will probably be a court case. It's going to come down to, is it, is the well-being of the students more important or the capital budget, right? Because, you know, at some point as a parent, you want your kid to be safe and healthy, right? Yeah, and there's arguments that if it's about a ventilated or a lovely space, they're going to do better at school, right? That's one side. And the other side is, yeah, that's all good, but, you know, I've only got X per head to spend here. And I think at some point there's going to need a court case and a government ruling to decide what's prime here. Is it prime, the well-being and the health? Probably. Yeah. Ultimately. Probably at some point. You know, another thing in our professional capacities is that and I'm retired now, so it's going to be up to others. But I, I think that it's important to, to keep things focused on the occupancies that matter the most and the yeah. biggest risk. And that's another thing that's gotten lost in the fog of complexity of COVID-19. So 
is it important to have, you know, terrific ventilation offices? Not really. There are no people there. (laughs) Is it important to have good ventilation and good filtration in nursing homes? Yeah, because otherwise people die as they have. Yeah, right. As they have died because of this. So it's like, and let's not worry quite so much about a the lobby of a hotel. Let's worry a great deal about ven- ventilation and particle filtration in nursing homes. And yeah. arguably more in K-12, arguably more in dormitories, and arguably a whole lot less in auditoriums because the occupants are really short. Not a lot of time. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Are you struggling with paperwork, spreadsheet overload, and project management? then Blue Rhythm is the solution to help you. Streamline your commissioning and project management process. Go paperless, increase efficiency, and save money. Blue Rhythm is commissioning and project management software by practitioners for practitioners, adapting to your workflows and processes, and doing things your way. Blue Rhythm provides painless and fast onboarding by bringing your existing workflows, forms, checklists, and issues logs into Blue Rhythm for you. You can use their pre-built templates to customize your commissioning workflows. And Blue Rhythm can fully handle the transition from your current software platform. Blue Rhythm is secure, scalable, and reliable, backed by amazing support, and accessible 24-7 on any Windows, iOS, or Android device. Why are you still using paper and hard-to-control spreadsheets? Start your free Blue Rhythm account today at bluerhythm.com. And now, back to the show. So, do you, going back to the moisture link here, right? So, you mm-hmm. know, COVID's come along. It's put a lot of emphasis and a big spotlight on ventilation, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think moisture control will be taking a backseat to that? Or it's been sort of like pushed out of the spotlight? Well, I, I think it's been out of the spotlight for a while. You know, there's certainly a question on the flip side of the humidity question about COVID-19 and whether or not raising humidity in buildings is a useful is a useful mitigation measure, and I would maintain it's quite clearly not a useful measure compared to other things. And at the same time, probably is something there, probably something that, that can be useful to raise humidity. And so maybe COVID-19 will keep and maybe just improving standards in general very much on the radar of our professional society. It probably humidity will remain on the radar that way. Probably not in terms of reducing it, maybe increasing it in new buildings. Right. New buildings being a totally different problem than existing buildings. Existing buildings, really bad idea to humidify like crazy. <laughs> I think existing buildings is where the action is going to be in the next generation. So yeah, yeah. Getting them up to a level that supports well-being as we understand it now. Yes, because new buildings don't matter very much, really. That's such of, a small part of total building stock. Wasn't yeah. my old prof used to draw a circle. He said ninety nine percent of that circle is existing building stock. Yeah, we <laughs> only talk about new buildings, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then, and then, that's the difficulty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I never forgot. I think that one so. of the things that's been going back to society and the public is, you know, Lou, and you mentioned about the awareness they have. I mean. Till COVID came along, um, people never thought about buildings other than those that they occupy. But we're talking about billions of buildings. The yes. inventory of buildings around the world that are existing, I mean, it's gigantic. I don't even know if there's a resource out there that can tell us how many buildings actually exist and in what state of repair they're in. But we do know that, for example, in the United States, I'm not, 
I don't think it's the GSA. You did some work with the GSA. Do they have an inventory of all the schools in the United States and what state of repair they're in? I think they do, don't they? Well, I, I don't think we're thinking about GSA. Probably thinking about the Environmental Protection Agency and also the survey that happens every 10 years about the uh, uh, building inventory and both commercial and residential. And so we do have some pretty good numbers on numbers of buildings of different types because of that every 10 years. It's basically a census. You know, politics interferes with that. So during certain administrations, it wasn't deemed to be important. So that, yeah. that was a problem. Do we have but, a ratio uh, of the number of building permits that are pulled in a year relative to the number of buildings that are exist? Yeah, I don't know what that is. It's certainly available, but it's yeah. very, very small. It's not 10%. <laughs> yeah, if it's, that. Like we're, we're, yeah. It's a lot smaller than that. Less than that. Yeah. Yeah, That'd be yeah. a great data mining project to take that all that data yeah. and sort of learn, try and slice it and dice it and get some insight off it, right? I mean, the GSA is a massive footprint, right? The military is yes. a massive building footprint. The school yes. system is a massive building. Just them three things alone, my goodness. That's yeah. like a freaking you know, ozone hole in its... We see the sense of frustration that society has when they start saying, well, it's Ashray's fault that all of this stuff is happening. Is going on in buildings, and it's you know, right. and, I, and, I, and I have empathy, you know, for those individuals. But you know, the reality <laughs> is, is that you know there are billions of buildings, and we're just—I mean, I think at one time I calculated that or figured out that the combined population of Canada and the United States represented less than five percent of the world's population. <laughs> like we're we're like so small, you know. But people see Ashray as this big, huge global you know borg <laughs> so, you know, just just to give you some concept we interviewed a uh, an academic yesterday and he called ashray the death star yeah that's the death that's star. great the death star. <laughs> and robert was a bit triggered well it was you know because people just actually that's not their fault i yeah. mean our our job as members of ashray particularly though i think you're a fellow Lou of Ashray, mm-hmm. your yeah. fellow, you know, our job in terms of communicating what Ashray is all about to society is really in our hands, and we have to show empathy and, and understand that not that people generally don't understand what the organization is all about, even to the extent that they need to understand that there are multiple organizations around the world. Some of them are members of the International Indoor Environmental General Alliance, the I, what is it, IAQGA. So you have Reba, you got SIPSI. And then you have Asia, Ishray in India, right? So there's Ashray just a small part of it, but we are part of a global organization that mm. is concerned with the indoor environment and energy and buildings and architecture. And we recognize that we have always had challenges. One of our I challenges think- is that we're not a Ferrari when it comes to getting things done. Like we just can't. We're not that zippy, <laughs> you know. Well, what we are is a is a composite car. <laughs> it made, made up of it made up partly of lawn tractor and then also, also Porsche, Porsche, a little piece of Porsche, and, and then we also have uh, earth movers uh, as right. part of this composite car. Yes, that makes and, uh, like- and and it's all put together by volunteers who are all looking to try and fit all this together in a coherent way. But mostly they don't care about the other part of the car because it's a big organization and it's all volunteer. This yeah. is the, the problem. It's like the traveling Wilburys. It's like a really bad tribute band where no one gets. 
<laughs> I've just like recently, a really bad tribute band. <laughs> I've just recently joined an ashtray committee. Years ago, I swore off ashtrays. I cannot get involved anymore. It's driving me crazy. <laughs> and I reluctantly joined this new committee, and the first meeting was just all over the show like a mad woman's poo. It was just how anything gets done in a volunteer organisation. I have no idea. This thing's going to go on for It's impressive. It's impressive. Yeah. When, when, I mean, there when, are, but there are priorities placed yeah. on some projects. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. When I think about Legionella, the Legionella standard, yeah, that was frustrated. There was, there's no doubt about it. It went. It, same thing with Standard 55. Both were experiencing frustrations, and they brought in senior members of Ashray. Could have been a past president, right, or somebody who was well known for leading committees, you know, to basically bring people together and say, listen, this document is far more important than your ego, right? You may have personal interests in this that might benefit you one way or another, either through an academic interest or a manufacturing interest. Well, that your interests are not as important as this document, you know, and they have, and they sit down. Sometimes you got 40, 50 people in a committee and they have to have a heart to heart with everybody it says, we need to get this done. And this is how we're going to do it. And sure enough, Proper leadership, right? I think, yeah, and I, I think that you know when when people criticize Ashray, the thing that I'd like them to think about, and sometimes I make the point is, is I ask them, well, how do you feel about you know tobacco smoking inside? Is that something that you think is a good thing that that is no longer the case in most of Europe and certainly North America? Is that, or is that something that didn't matter? It did matter in terms of reduction of deaths. And that you can thank Ashray for because it was Ashray that said, we cannot protect you. Therefore, there is no safe limit of indoor environmental tobacco smoke. There is none. We cannot do that. You will have to prohibit it. And if it were not for that, it would still be fine. You know? Was that the year <laughs> the Ashray president got shot by the tobacco lobbyists? I think the number when when that came out, I think there was something on the order of seven thousand public comments, all most of them from the identical ones from the tobacco industry. Off but the it, case straight, right? You know, <laughs> but it was really, yeah, basically. So ashtray. The other thing is like ashtray. Let's see. Well, how do you feel about refrigeration? You, you like you like medicines that travel and don't you know <laughs> that don't expire? <laughs> you know, yeah. It can't happen without refrigeration. That's ashtray. That are there that's refrigeration everybody even yeah. with an ashray we forget about that yeah. but i don't buy the idea that uh, that ashray is a, a death star i <laughs> i beg to differ <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's okay that we have refrigerators i think it's okay that, that we can populate uh, humid parts of the of the world because we have air conditioning and uh, with but, all of its the potential limitations in terms of the environment like, in defense I, of ashray it maybe it needs to be a death star because it's Fighting some big fights, right? It's doing some big <laughs> stuff. Sometimes you've got to shoot a laser cannon and take out a rebel, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, it always needs improvement. And that's one of the beauties of the organization. One of the frustrations also, to be fair, but also one of the advantages is, you know, it's always changing. So if you have uh, pointing out something that's exceptionally bad, then ASHRAE is a nexus to be able to do something about it. Yeah, um, it's just got heft, right? Not easy. Yeah. It's not yeah. not simple. It's uh, quite frustrating to sit in those meetings. But uh, I've asked many, many people who have been <laughs> criticizing ASHRAE to tell me what the solution is and tell me an alternative organization that can do what you want to have happen. 
when yeah. you want it to happen. Yeah. All right. Nobody or can answer it. Crickets. So either either like zip it or put <laughs> forth a solution and jump on board with the rest of us to make a difference. Otherwise, shut up. Yeah, there you yeah, go. I, 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 I liked your post a lot. Uh, there is no they, if I remember yeah, what you're us. pointing out. It's us. I use that as a definition of a grown-up. Is you, you've grown up when you realize there is no they. It's just us. Yeah. <laughs> right. If you still say they, then you, you're not really a mature human being. You're not getting the point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually think Ashray should go more Darth Vader. I think they should become a bit more lobbyist, a bit more K Street. And I think the president of Ashray should sit on the EPA board, something like that. You know, put mush them in with the people who are making the big decisions and see if they can have some influence. That would be one way to go. Yep. Well, there's a lot of that's been happening here in COVID for sure. Yeah. You know, Bill and uh, and folks have, have been, uh, you know, quite helpful to, the, to policymakers all the way up to the White House in the U.S., so it is definitely being heard. But again, it's very difficult for ASHRAE to speak with a coherent voice because of the fact that it's a very diverse organization. And there's only one person who speaks for ASHRAE, and that is the president. Yeah. Everyone else is, just has an opinion and they're a volunteer. How is Bill not sitting on some EPA advisory committee somewhere who's spreading some senior politicians here? That should be happening, right? Well, it... it has happened, actually. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, we'll, and we'll see because <laughs> there is and I think Lou are you you're on the new committee for controlling airborne pathogens no I'm not no I thought a lot long and hard about it and said <laughs> no, I'm, I'm retired and and I, yeah. I'll tell you why because uh, to your point Adam is that in terms of ASHRAE committee work it's enormously important it's very rewarding it's very arduous it's very energy consuming we'll put it yeah. that way and at some point and I reached this point late last year and when I simply resigned from the working group on on sixty two point one on humidity, is that I found that I I wasn't able to be diplomatic anymore. I it exhausted my reserves of, of diplomacy. Yeah. And and no matter you know what I felt I had to contribute, I wasn't going to be able to do that in a productive way anymore because I was just too too annoyed at at folks that should understand things. They're very smart, but they don't understand things and they reject obvious evidence. And that happens too. And and I just said, okay, I, I can't do this anymore right? because I, I'm just going to be the crabby old guy. And that's not useful in any way. So I, I resigned. And, and that that's my problem too with, uh, with getting more involved, further involved. So I, I've retired from ASHRAE as well, <laughs> although I... <laughs> from, from active ASHRAE involvement, we'll put it that way. <laughs> Actually, I think ASHRAE needs to have, I mean, sitting on a committee is, is emotionally exhausting and you do need to be young and enthusiastic for that, I think, to some degree, right? Or have a lot of time on your hands and be a total nerd. Those are the two sort of requirements. And but you do need that cross-section of age. You need people in their 30s, 40s, 50s. You know, you need that yeah. cross-section in there, right? And I think... Mm-hmm. Ashray could do a little bit more work in getting some younger younger people more enthusiastic about it and getting some of them. becomes an economic problem for younger yeah. people. Yeah. Uh, because these days, really in the last 20 years, companies don't pay to support your activities no, with an true. ASHRAE either in terms of the time that it takes to be a volunteer to do yeah. things or in the money to get you to meetings so that you can be effective. And that's that just means that if you're young, you're going to be spending two, three thousand bucks, five, six thousand dollars a year 
in order to volunteer to do more volunteer time. So it's, that's a tough thing for for someone who's trying to to raise a family. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. Actually, I didn't think of that. And yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, that really hit home. It was at a Denver meeting, and I remember running into some of my Canadian industry colleagues mm-hmm. in the National Research Council, and I had heard previously to coming down that they weren't funding any trips. In my mind, I was thinking that I wouldn't see anybody. And sure enough, I ran into two colleagues there. And I said, how did you guys get down? He says, we paid our own way. Yeah. You know? And they just said, we just felt the research work that we were doing was so important that mm-hmm. despite our ability to get funding to come down, we came down on our own dime. And I said, oh, man. Yeah. That's always been the case with me. I never had anybody pay for me to go to ASHRAE. So that's yeah. 35 years of honing up several thousand dollars a year in order to volunteer to do more work than when I got back home. You know, But as you say, you, you, you need the, the energy, the enthusiasm for particular issues to be able to yeah. sustain your ability to participate productively. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've written a couple of books for ASHRAE, and I've been involved in a couple of committees that oversaw the publication of documents for ASHRAE. And, you know, when you talk about some of the dollars that go into these books, on the surface, they seem like, you know, the authors are making a ton of money. <laughs> I, just, I laugh, I laugh. I, you know, some, <laughs> some of these books, yeah, like, if you only knew, like, you know, these authors are like living off of craft dinner and water, <laughs> you know, to make this publication available to engineers. Some of them are making good money, you know. Yeah. Any person who thinks authors make money and people who've never written a book. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. No, you, you don't, you don't write a book to get rich. You, you, you no. write a book to make a point and to help other people. I, <laughs> another anecdote on, that I tell people about why why I you know acted as the writer for many of these books that got written. You know, yeah. the writer is different from the content generator. Sometimes I generated content, but a lot of the time I'm gathering yeah. from, from who was gathering from other people. But the humanity control design guide is a case in point. That the committee that uh, wanted to have that was not the humidity control committee. It was the tall building HVAC committee. And I saw that come out as a request for proposal. And I said, nobody else is going to get that job. I am going to get it because, <laughs> because they always screw it up. And I don't want that to happen. The next three years of my life was dedicated towards trying to straighten out the way of thinking about that and finding the funding that could make that the book that it was. It's just... It's a very arduous process, and you, you you have to you have to believe that that it's important to do because otherwise you wouldn't spend the vast amount of time necessary to do it. The anecdote that I think about is is Winston Churchill. After the Second World War, reporters happened to be asking Churchill about the run up to the Second World War, and then at some point they came to the question of Neville Chamberlain, who, as probably you remember, was the Prime Minister immediately prior to uh, Winston yeah. Churchill, who came back from Munich having achieved peace in our time. The two weeks before Hitler decided to invade yeah. Poland. So, you know, he he didn't succeed. And Churchill said, Oh yes, yes, Neville, poor Neville. I'm afraid that history is not going to be kind to poor Neville. <laughs> I know because I'm going to write it. <laughs> <laughs> 
that is funny. <laughs> and so the anecdote kind of reminds you that if you write something down, you, you can really help people think about something yes. a certain way for better and for worse. It's enormous responsibility when you write something down to make sure you don't send people off on the wrong track or confuse them. But it does, you can have a terrific impact over time if you're willing to organize your thoughts and put them on paper or now on the web in blogs and uh, in yeah. podcasts, guys, <laughs> like you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> this is the point, right? One of the reasons we do this is to, to bring people up like Bill, yourself, who've got something to say and got something to contribute. And it's trying to, in my feeble mind, I'm trying to get younger people excited about the built environment and coming in and doing some work, right, and making a difference. We, we need our Elon Musk, the person who's going to come in and rah-rah everyone up and do some big stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah, maybe not that model, but yeah. <laughs> I get the point. I get the point. I get the point. <laughs> right? <laughs> maybe a Steve Jobs without all the downside, right? When I think about guys like Joe Stebrek, and I know you're a good friend of Joe's. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. And- That's a good example, yeah. Yeah, he really is probably one of the best examples, certainly one of them. But I mean, Lou, it's all the things that you publish and the stuff that Joe publishes and, you know, the stuff that we're putting out of our podcast and other people put out. When I think of Joe Hughes and Cliff Zolnichuk from MyEQ Radio, like there's a legacy. That library is, I remember talking to Joe about it because we had Joe, we did a co-trade show. Yeah. Like the two, our two podcasts got together and recorded it. And we published both of them. Yeah, so that was really cool. And I remember him telling us how, how they got started and, yeah. you know, with the, the ethos of that whole show. Yeah. And they're sitting there with that inventory of knowledge. And I don't, and how do you put a price on it? Like, it's just there is no price tag on it. It becomes a question, too, of, of access to that information, not because it isn't freely available, but because nobody knows it's there. So, yes, you know, if, if a report is filed... In Indiana Jones warehouse, there does the report exist at all? You know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, and right. so knowing that the it becomes a question of marketing of the information, of public relations for the information itself, and that's not trivial. And we don't have any good systems for that. You no. know, I, years ago I, I was asked to give a uh, a keynote for for NIBS National Institute of Building Science and on their series about uh, mold and moisture in buildings, and so I thought about what I thought was important. And I, I really said, I, I really think what we need is, is, is we need better information delivery systems. What would that be? And so I thought a little bit about that. And I, I like what I came up with then. You know, a good information delivery system delivers information to the decision maker, not to the person sitting next to him or her. Right. <laughs> At the time of decision, not six weeks before, 20 minutes too late. Yeah. In a form which is actionable. I like that. So that's a good information delivery system. And we don't have a good information delivery system for building science. What we have is we have a warehouse of of information, which is good. We have codes and standards, which are also good. They're good in theory, bad in practice, because nobody can understand why they say what they say, because they're written in code language. So it's prohibited to provide yeah. the logic. <laughs> so there's there's all sorts of these resources, but it doesn't deliver information to the decision maker at the moment of decision in a form that is actionable. And that's what we need for information delivery systems. And we, we need to have more of them and 
more effective ones. <laughs> that's a really good point. It's really, that's a great point. And the fact we're still not doing that, given the delivery systems and reach of the, the internet provides, right? I mean, take mm. YouTube, for example, right? I can deliver all around the world. It's almost flat in the world, right? Yes. So we're still not quite, I guess it's because we're a niche in a niche, right? We're a niche of the built environment. But somehow, this is where you do need a firm like Google to like grab this and Death Star it and put it out somewhere, right? Yeah, and of course we need ChatGPT to be able to uh, to sort through it and uh, and make sense of it all. Uh, maybe maybe that will be a good force, and maybe that will be the Death Star, ChatGPT, yeah, you know, artificial intelligence. Uh, I, I'm quite optimistic, but then I'm an optimistic guy. <laughs> you know what? If you log into ChatGPT and it goes, "Hello, Sarah Connor," I look in for Sarah Connor. <laughs> We're in trouble. Arnold Schwarzenegger should be the voice of ChatGPT. That would be the coolest move ever. That would be very cool. Yeah. <laughs> so that we're coming up on on an hour now. So we normally yep. we normally finish with some um, just one rapid fire question each. Um, do you want to go first, Robert, or should I? Yeah, sure. Yeah, Lou. Every time I've heard you talk, I've been in your presence. You've just got this soul about you, this ethos about you. That's this kind of all knowing gentle giant of, of knowledge and you've been able to do that through your whole career where'd that personality trait come from and if you had to teach a class of students about communication communication styles what would you say to them mm, yeah that would be well i'll tell you it would depend on the audience <laughs> it would depend on 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 which students they were how old they were what their background was and therefore how best to reach them and that's that's what i would that's what I say to them, too, is that uh, by understanding the audience and what their needs and wants are and where they are coming from and what they understand and what they don't understand, that's the best way to uh, uh, to communicate if you are teaching or you're trying to communicate everything, any anything at all, marketing, selling ideas, uh, selling concepts. If you don't understand where the other person's coming from on a very visceral and, and respectful level, then there's not much point. <laughs> so, so if you respect your audience, that means that you're going to learn about them ahead of time and you're going to take the 99% of what you have and distill it in a certain way for them at this moment in a form that is actionable for them. <laughs> My question is, you're reflecting back on a career arc here. If you were looking, so knowing what you know now, Looking forward, where do you see like the next breakthroughs coming through in the built environment? Well, I see a lot of them because I spend a lot of time on YouTube, so I'm very well informed <laughs> about innovation. And I'm not kidding about that. Yeah. YouTube is a force for, for good uh, in, yes. in the world because it, it allows a very succinct communication of a lot of information in yeah. a short amount of time. And it's very good. But I would say that a couple things. You know, one is that there certainly is a revolution in, in building technology coming with printed houses and printed buildings. Mm -hmm. But before that, that's really for small structures. For big structures, 3D design and building automation, building information systems, basically the idea that you built a, a database that includes everything about the building. And that's real and that's happening now, much to my surprise and delight, is that, is that that's becoming a common feature. So those are very important things. And then the other thing is, the third is, is public awareness of the value 
that will fade really quickly because public attention does fade really quickly. Yeah. But we have this golden moment for the next, yeah, maybe a year, year and a half. So short term, it's the public consciousness of how important the indoor environment is to our health. As I say, it won't last, <laughs> but, but we do have a moment where we can say, <laughs> let us give you this to think about with respect to quality of indoor air, at least. <laughs> it's the hair on fire moment, right? It was right. What do we do? <laughs> okay, I like that. No, oh, thanks very much. Uh, well, listen, thank you so much for coming on. It has been yeah, a pleasure to talk to you and uh, no extract some wisdom from you. And yeah, so uh, if we can help you in any way, let us know. Otherwise, thank you so much for coming on. Great. Thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. Bye-bye. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Are you passionate about the built environment? Do you want to learn from the industry's most inspiring, intelligent, and accomplished professionals? Then the companion to this podcast, Wisdom of the Property Crowd, is just the book for you. From Edifice Complex podcast interviews... This book distills the critical thinking, insight, and ideas of some of the property industry's most accomplished and respected practitioners. Each chapter is a synopsis of an hour-plus interview, capturing the takeaways and insights, including diagrams and images, to help explain concepts and ideas. There's also a brief bio about the interviewee and a QR code linked to the podcast episode for those that want to explore further. These are the mentors you wish you had in college. Wisdom of the Property Crowd by Adam Muggleton. Available on Amazon worldwide. And now, back to the show. Fearless about learning. Now, there's a good way to start a program. <laughs> Lou, thank you for that, Jim. I totally, um, that should be taught to everybody. Yeah. I, can you teach, I don't have, fearless about learning. That's an internal strength. That's a cultural core value. Right. Yeah. So what I took away was his parents somehow knocked into him some way or the other, culture through osmosis, who knows, right? A core value that is be humble and be open to learning, right? That's how he entered the world. And that turns out is a competitive advantage that no one tells you about. <laughs> right? Yep. Yeah. Because, you know, you're young, full of yourself, you're not listening to anyone. And, you know, if you can just take that step back, be humble, realize, because it's one of the things I've come to, the older I get, the more stupid I realize I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you know this, but I'm part of this COVID is air, airborne group. Uh, yeah. We started in Europe and we are a collective of, it's a multidisciplinary yeah. collaboration. And we have epidemiologists, we have surgeons, we have physicians, you know, we have a whole, the part of that collaboration is representing the medical profession. The people that came in that organization came in with Lou's attitude. You know, they didn't come in like, we're physicians. We know everything. You know nothing. We're God here. You know, they came in with, well, hang on a second here. You know, we need to learn about what is actually going on here. And when you step outside into the real world and yeah. you see how people who are arrogant, they think they know it all. Look at what's happening to them. They're getting proven wrong over and over and over again. Lou's it's, never been that person. Yeah. Lou's always been the person that I'm, every time I take a breath, I'm going to learn something new. And I love that about the guy. I mean, that group you're in is almost like a microcosm of what's going on with the COVID culture wars right now, right? Right. It's the inability to say, you know what, I might have not been right there, that is driving more than half of this. The ability not to reflect and say, Hey, you know what? I think that was a wrong call by me. 
Have you had anyone say that? Yeah. <laughs> very, that. Few, very few people have said it. The odd person did. The uh, outgoing, and I don't want to give her a title, and I can't pronounce her name, but she was with The Who. She was a senior member of the scientific team. And when she exited, she said, we made a mistake. We should have recognized that COVID was airborne early yeah. on. We should have communicated that, and we didn't. And that's one example. But as much as we're grateful for that statement, a little too late because, you know, here we are four years in and it's a misallocation of time, energy and resources, right? Fighting that old fight rather than looking at what we can do now, right? Accepting something was not quite right. Just fucking draw. No one could be wrong. Do you know what? Someone said this the other day to me, it made me laugh. Baby boomers have raised a horrible parents. They've raised the most selfish assholey people ever because no one can say they're wrong or no or i don't know where have you heard someone yeah. say i don't know doesn't happen it's right very true well you know and you think about it, like so again like for those that are listening this is COVID time there was a yeah. publication by cochran review which is like the gold standard right and they had a bunch of authors who are very well known write a review on the effectiveness of masks and the lead author of that paper went on to make statements that masks weren't effective. But that's not what their research showed in the paper. And then Cochran here a couple of weeks ago said, listen, we apologize. The wording of our summary and of the authors were not right. So who was peer reviewing that then? And that's the point, Adam. Like this is this is a document that is these are the gold standard. Like there's you know nothing should get through a Cochrane review that hasn't been vetted properly. And then in this case those conclusions got out, and here we are now two weeks later. Well, of course, that went around the world like wildfire. So what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is we see major scientific organizations realize that they've published documents that have been submitted misleading information to society and got picked up. We have the WHO, who still won't you know, publicly come out and say that they screwed up, yet there are senior people leaving saying that they did. Yeah. We have an organization that's tracking retractions in technical papers on COVID and other ones. 250 papers have been retracted. 250 scientific papers. So you think about what the WHO put out, what the scientists have put out, and then this, you know, the Cochrane Review. Now you get to see why the world is so... Yeah, because well, everyone... Whenever I see any discussion about masks, all that goes to my mind is just put an N95 on, move on, next, next, N95, N95 is all I want to say to someone. If I could punch that into someone's brain, I would, you know what I mean? And I just, I you know I have a standing invitation to anybody out there from the medical profession who's on this sort of anti-mask mandate to show up at our ne- as a volunteer, because we're doing volunteer work, on our next mold remediation project with your surgical mask. Well, A, OSHA won't let us let you on the job site because it's going to be an N95 and whether you like it or not, you got to wear it. You know, no one's, no one's, there's no anti-maskers on a construction site. There's nobody, like we've talked about this before. I'm just yeah, no atheist in a fox hole, right? <laughs> just like, give, like, you know? Yeah, These no, are highly intelligent man. people who are so stupid. I've never seen such a tearing of the fabric of knowledge in my life. It's so yeah. much cognitive dissonance going on. It's it's almost embarrassing. Let's go back to Lou because Lou is yes. not that guy. So um, the other great thing he came out with negative knowledge. I love that. That was that was sweet. That was a good line, man. 
That was. There's. I'm gonna you know, use that one, Lou. If you see that out there, I'll credit you to probably for the first year, and then after that, I'll forget about it. <laughs> Negative knowledge. You, what you know is the wrong stuff, and you go there, and it's, that's not good. You and I both, when he talked about communicating, get the information to the decision maker, make sure that your timing is right, and make sure that it's actionable. <laughs> was so on point. I have, I wrote that down. That was like it's like following King Jong un around and writing his wife's words down. <laughs> I was like that guy. So he said a good information system delivers the right information to the decision maker when he needs it with the actionable options. Yeah. I love that. But that is just like because when you've wanted to make a decision, you're always sitting there going, no, I've got to check that. I've got to find that. Where's that part? You know, you just want this was what Ronald Reagan used to go. He used to say, so when he was president, he would say, you're giving me a one-page memo, one paragraph, the problem, paragraph two, the options, paragraph three, your recommendation and why, and I ain't reading anything else. Yeah. <laughs> and, Absolutely. Uh, well, apparently that put the whole White House, because everyone was giving, would give the president like these multi-page briefings, and he made them do it. Now... Possibly that was a coping mechanism by him, but wow, that makes the clarity required to get it down to that. And yep. the church will say, if you want me to write a long book, no problem. You want me to give you something concise, I need a long time to do that. <laughs> you know? And it's just true, right? Because when you write anything, you start off with this mind dump and you start cutting away the rubbish, right? Yeah. So I love that, man. That that there's a. I was thinking, is that a software system? Is there some way to get that? <laughs> you know what I mean? No, right. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that. And the way you disseminate information, because one of the problems engineers have, you have to absorb and synthesize a lot of information, codes, regs, standards, good practice, the stuff you learn in college, you know, all this stuff, you've got to like access it and synthesize it and put it into whatever you're doing at that moment. Having an information distribution system that brought you that in very easy chunks as and when you need it, that is the yeah. holy grail of information. It really system. is. Right? Yeah. But my answer to that is Microsoft Notes and a massive PDF file on my laptop at the moment. <laughs> he also said something that, you know, if there's anything you can do as a parent is to instill a responsibility in your children to improve those things around you. Yeah. You know, and lose a living example of that. I, I don't know anything that Lou has touched to where, you know, he hasn't tried to improve it. One way or another, and if he can't do it, like you said, then he'll then he'll just bow out. Yeah, yeah, he's really talking about also passing on the baton to other people, right? The next generation, getting them involved, because you know that's essentially what happened to him, right? He was excited, made excited about learning and being open and being humble, and that's really I get I think a subconscious way of passing that on, right? Yeah, that's a a career well lived, in my opinion, his career. I like the fact he knew he had to resign from that committee in the end because everyone gets that point on a committee. You think, I just can't do this anymore. Yeah. I'm either going to go postal here or I've got to resign. There's a, there's a zero or one. Well, and I've, I've been in those meetings, as yeah. you have, where personality conflicts get yeah. really elevated. Yeah. And everything come, comes to a halt. Yes. You know, because you end up, well, a good part of it is debating what's in front of you but a big part of it also is just the inability for some people who are so focused to realize that, you know what there are other ways of doing this no, it's not just your way and the bigger picture is 
this. You want this, but reality is, is this or vice versa. Right. And I think about 62.2 and they've been debating forever about unvented fireplaces. Right. And those houses. Well, you know, there's an entire industry, not in Canada, but in the United States that make a living off of selling fireplaces that where the gas is not vented outside. It's allowed to stay inside the building. I don't like that. I I have spent enough time inside tents in the freaking frigid tundra of Canada that even I know to put my stove outside when it's time to boil water or make food. Like, just don't, you just don't occupy a space, even though, you know, they could come up with all kinds of studies and reports to suggest that the numbers are well below risk levels you're still breathing in the products of combustion and it's just and they're byproducts of that right yeah exactly so this is where money and politics muddy everything right because there's a lobby there of some sort there's political pressure there's influence this is where engineers have to find their backbone sometimes right and make the stand absolutely yeah anyway lou great guest I love his approach. You know, he should be going around colleges giving rah-rah speeches, in my opinion. Yeah, get, for sure. Getting graduates like rah-rah'd up about getting yeah. out there and doing something, you know. that's yeah. That would be the best use of his time right now if we could employ him. But anyway, that's what I'd do with him. Anyway, yeah. it's good. He was a great guest. So look, I shall see you on the next one then. All right, Adam. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.